If you have a Bible, turn there. Psalm 88. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen for you. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to the Mahath, Anoth, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. <laughs> Those are just means of saying this is the type of song it is um, and who wrote it. Here, here we go, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. That's Hebrew language for the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Selah. It's a phrase, um, maybe something rhythmically that they were supposed to do. We don't really know. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim with sor- through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead, I ask? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon, another word for the realm of the dead? Are your wonders known in the darkness, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless." Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close me in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Anthony Bourdain Kate Spade, Halle Berry, Leo Tolstoy, Buzz Aldrin, Terry Bradshaw, all wrestled with depression. You know people who've wrestled with depression. 10% of every individual in our country in a given year is wrestling with depression. There was a man, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He knew the gospel, and everyone who came within the sound of his voice knew it well in the 19th century England because of the clarity and the eloquence and the beauty with which he expounded the beauty of the gospel. But that same preacher, his name was Charles Spurgeon, also said this, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go through. During these depressions, every mental and spiritual labor is carried on under a protest of spirit. I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew, know not what I even weep about. Charles Spurgeon, as great as he was, would spend somewhere between two and three months every year unable to preach because he was debilitated so badly by his depression. The depression that we are addressing is not that you have had a sad mood for a day or two, because your retirement investments took a hit. It is not just a mopiness for a little while after a a breakup. The depression that I'm talking about today is one that is known by the depth of its severity of darkness or by the length of it. It is a melancholiness, a deadness of spirit that can last for years on end. 
Depression is a life-absorbing, incapacitating condition. Depression is a thief of people's energy for life, concentration, joy, community, health, and sometimes, yes, life itself. If you're depressed, the idea of trying harder feels like the idea of going to the moon. Depression affects your sleep. You may not sleep at all, or you may sleep all the time. It can affect your appetite. You eat everything, or you eat nothing. It affects your emotions. For some, of, for some, it makes your emotions sit right under the surface so that you're always weepy. For others, they feel nothing. Nothing. Depression yields an inability to concentrate and even crippling indecisiveness. People who have suffered with both depression and cancer report that the depression was far greater sorrow and suffering for them than any treatment that they experienced. One in ten adults will be in the midst of this kind of depression in a given year. Nearly one in four teenage girls will experience a major depressive episode in a given year lasting for more than two weeks. And here we're talking about thoughts of suicide, thoughts of absolute worthlessness, a struggle to even get out of bed. One in four. Studies have shown that depression is more physically and socially disabling than arthritis, diabetes, lung disease, chronic back pain, just to list a few. Major depressive disorder is the leading cause of disability in our country for those between the ages of 15 and 44. For men, the onset, they could be healthy and lively and be energetic, and often in the onset of their early 30s, it will hit them like a freight train. Why do you think that is? Work, marriage, children, all the things that they trusted in begin to crumble internally. And yet, in the face of this onslaught, I want you to understand this, that the Bible is sufficient to meet us in our sorrows and provide us the roadmap to point us to both things in the Bible and truths and things outside of the Bible that are places of comfort in the long road of healing our souls. The author of Psalm 88 was a man named Heman. We don't know much about him. He is the founder of the choir during Solomon's reign known as the sons of Korah. He spent his life singing praises to God and comprising songs for the people of Israel. But what he has composed here in Psalm 88 is nothing short of despair unlike any other psalm. Commentators in their term have described this song as the saddest, the gloomiest, and the darkest of psalms. One commentator said it was simply one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. If you read the laments in the Psalms, and there are many, of grief and sorrow that are expressed there, almost all of them take this arc. There's worship, and then dropping into the depths of sorrow, and then ultimately rising again into worship. Not so this one. This one is sorrowful from beginning to end. There is no point in which it rises back up. Like a piano chord, or an illust- is to use that illustration, the idea of like playing music, And you would think of like a a dirge type psalm, but you would hope that at the end you would have some sort of ending chord at the very end of the psalm that would give you some sense of life and hope. But how does he end the psalm? My companions have become darkness. It would be like Joel showing up one Sunday to lead worship and saying, hey guys, I wrote a new song for us. It's called Darkness is My Closest Friend. Let's all stand and sing together. That's what Psalm 88 is. And what we have in Psalm 88 is one man who is familiar with the state of deep and dark depression. Yet for the person walking in the depths of depression, what I invite you to do this morning is to find in the psalmist a friend in your loneliness, because depression is lonely. That you might see in the cries to the Lord of this psalmist glimmers of light. That if you would trace the questions that we'll look at near the end, 
to the, God's answers. Perhaps there you would, might find shafts of light that break forth at the end of their shadows within your soul. So let's use this psalm to talk about depression this morning. Three things I want to say. First, first and foremost, let's look at the cries of the depressed soul. The cries of the depressed soul. Thanks, Katie, for getting that back up. Depression is difficult to grasp hold of. It is a veil of life and it's a mist. We're not entirely sure what brings it on. The Bible doesn't really define it for us. And in understanding even chemical imbalances, you cannot test for it. You can test for its symptoms and say you have enough symptoms that say, yes, you're a depressed person. But therefore, the best way to actually get a sense of the experience of depression and what it is is to simply listen to, those, to the descriptions of those who are experiencing it. And we can look to the psalmist here in Psalm 88. He cries out to the Lord. And what does he say about his experience of depression? Let's just list some of the expressions here. Verse 1, I'm sorrowing. I'm crying all night. Verse 3, I'm troubled in spirit. I have feelings of dread. Verse 4, there's a loss of strength and vitality. Verse 5, it's a feeling of being cut off and abandoned and alone. He has no sense of God's presence and joy. There's a sense of darkness and even foreboding in his spirit. Verse 7, he's overwhelmed. Verse 8, he's feeling rejected. Verse 15, he's helpless and he's terrified. Verse 16, he is assaulted. Even he thinks by God and believes that God is angry at him. And verse 18, darkness, darkness, darkness. And we hear similar cries from modern sufferers as well as they describe their depression. For some, there is just a deadness of spirit. That's how they describe it. They can't feel any joy. There is, no, there is a sense of nothingness and lifelessness, a lethargy in their soul and their spirit. Here's some quotes from various books I've read on depression from actual people who are wrestling through it. Not, not famous people, just people who are wrestling through depression. Depression involves a complete absence, absence of affect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. One person said, I am barely a walking zombie. Everything is drab, lifeless, tired. Why work? Why get out of bed? Why do anything? Why even commit suicide? Nothing matters. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Naked Seed, said this, My heart is empty. All the fountains that should run with longing, all the things that I used to desire are in me dried up. If I can give you, to, to take it from the quote world to the, maybe an illustration, imagine a depressed person would experience this, that they look at their 10-month-old beautiful baby girl playing in front of them on the floor, crawling and cooing, and suddenly that baby girl looks up at them and breaks into a grin and a giggle. And, and the feeling of someone who is experiencing this type of depression looks at it and feels no response. And the grief and the sorrow is that the only thing they do feel is this, is to look at that and know, I should feel incredible delight in this. And the pain and the sorrow is they feel nothing over the delight in their child. For others, though, it's not a nothingness. It's an overwhelmed feeling, being burdened, overcome with grief that seems like it will never go away. It dogs you. It surrounds you like a tornado. This is where the darkness images come in. Job chapter 30, we go back to a Bible passage, verses 16 and 17, he says this, My soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The nights rack my bones and the pain gnaws me, that gnaws me takes no rest. There is no relief. Abraham Lincoln thought that the pain that he experienced in depression would lead to death, that the body simply couldn't tolerate it. He said these words, I am now the most miserable man living, 
If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole of the human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. To remain as I am is impossible. It appears that I either must die or get better. And this experience will leave you feeling exhausted, wouldn't you think? Exhausted of soul. There's another passage in the Psalms that begins this way. As the deer panteth for water, so my soul pants for you, God. Now, we have put that verse, and we've taken it, and we've put it on coffee cups with deer or on, on pictures that we put on our, 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 our fridge. We think of that as, as us getting ready for our quiet time and standing before the Lord and just this moment of passion going, I just long for you, Jesus. That's not what's going on. The spirit of these words is like an animal who has been living in the desert and has not had water and can barely put one foot in front of the other and is about to die. And it's the soul that's saying, God, I have searched for you, you the living water, and you have been nowhere to be found. I can barely take another step for you. I need you now, now. Depression often comes with feelings of worthlessness and shame and deep, dark fear creeping insidiously along your soul saying these things. You are worthless. You are weak. God has abandoned you, and it'd be better if you were gone. Depressions indeed leave some wishing for death. In the story Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, who was familiar with depression, wrote this. It's an allegory of the Christian life. And it follows this particular traveler named Christian. It's a fairly obvious allegory. And he's traveling along a road to the celestial city, which is heaven. And at some point, he and a fellow traveler who is with them, they get, they get taken off the main road that's leading to heaven. And they call the King's Highway. And they, take, they get off and they take a nap. And then they're caught in a storm. And they can't find their way back to the highway. And eventually, a giant named Despair captures them and throws them into his dungeon. And it says on Thursday, despair came and beat them up. On Friday, he came and urged them to kill themselves. And on Saturday, he abraded them and says, if, I didn't, if they didn't kill themselves by Sunday, he would do it for them. And all this caused Christian to cry out in despair, the grave would be easier for me than this dungeon. That is the cry of one caught in depression. We need to pause for some good news, don't we? <laughs> You feel, I'll tell you what, studying this for a week or two weeks will leave you, yeah, depressed. But perhaps we have some good news even in this. I want you to see this, and this is for quite, not so much from the text itself, but the fact that the text is there. You are not forgotten, depressed one. Your voice is heard. God so values and has heard the voice of your cries that he has put it smack dab in the middle of his redemptive word. This is not something that is outside of God's word. God has said, this is the very word of God. He's included it in his story. Derek Kigner, who is considered by many to be conservative theologians to be the best commentary writer on the Psalms, said this, if we believe that God through the Holy Spirit inspired and assembled the scriptures for us, then we can see that God has not censored out prayers like this. God does not say, oh, real believers don't talk like that. I don't like, I don't like that. I don't want anything like that in my Bible. 
By keeping prayers like this in his Bible, God identifies himself with those who cry out in this way. It shows that God remains the psalm writer's God. Not because the man puts on a happy face and controls his emotions, but because we have a God who listens, who draws near to the brokenhearted, and God is patient and gracious, and he is gentle to us, and he allows us not only just to express our feelings, but to place our experience of depression smack dab within his redemptive work. That's the God who hears and who listens to the cries of your soul. What are the causes of the depressed soul? The cause of the depressed soul. Why do we get depressed? And what is going on even in the increase of depression in our country? Do you know that for the last 60 years, the numbers are going up? There's a lot of things going on. Our food, our lack of health physically, there's things going on culturally. It used to be you grew up and you knew you would work on dad's farm. You had an identity. You had a family. You were raised in a community with aunts and uncles. Now, from the time you are little, you are supposed to be a Disney princess and you have to achieve it. Whatever narrow focus. And that is a pressure that is crushing us. But our answer goes farther than that. Our answer is that the far, and there are far and wide and high and deep effects of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, we saw this last week, we all fell in every aspect. Our feelings, our minds, our desires, our bodies, the world around us, everything fell and broke. Therefore, depression we can know biblically, this is biblically, because all aspects of this world broke, can help be a means of causing our depression is there's relational causes. A steady diet of discouraging words from people who are supposed to love us or perhaps sexual violation and the shame it brings certainly contributes to depression. Those who are abused and children have a massively, massively higher rate of depression and suicide and addiction because there are relational causes to their depression. They've been bruised and broken by the sinners around them. There are physical and bodily causes. Our, our bodies can't create hopelessness or loss of purpose, but they can disrupt sleep, fog your thinking, cause us to have physical feelings of depression. There are genetic issues. Depression can run in families. Puberty, menopause, a release of crazy amounts of chemicals in your body that makes you go, what the heck is going on, will cause depression. So I, one in four teenage girls will experience it during their, during their teenage years. It comes back again later on. There are some known diseases such as Parkinson's disease and hyperthyroidism that are directly linked to depression and our prescription medications. Have you listened to, listened to them list off the side effects of medications that we're giving to people? Almost all of them will say depression. One, one friend, I heard one story of a friend who sent their daughter on a mission trip and she had to take, she was going to go to Africa and she was, had to take a malaria medicine in order to go and for some reason, the malaria medicine triggered something in her body that sent her spiraling into a depression for well over the next year. There are circumstantial causes, deep loss, loss of a loved one, enormous amounts of stress, combat, all can be a context in which depressed feelings arrive in our lives. There are satanic causes. Satan is an opportunist. He is not omnipresent, but he is opportunistic. And he knows when those who are susceptible to this and when they are susceptible, the evil one comes and he says, does God really care? Is he really with you? Wouldn't a good father show up in this place? I wonder what's wrong with you. I wonder what you did wrong. The satanic attacks of the evil one can be a means or context for our depression. 
and yes, there are moral causes. Our sin, our unbelief, our commitment to live for ourselves can indeed lead to depression. And I don't simply mean a momentary state of depression. I mean it can actually change the pathways in your brain. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 says this, For when I kept silent, this is a psalmist saying that I had, he had failed to confess his sin before the Lord and before others. And he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, because of unconfessed sin, there was the experience of depression. Take any spiritual problem, anger, fear, unbelief, guilt, or shame, and allow that to persist in your life for a significant period of time without applying the truth of the gospel to it, you can bet depression will come down the road at some point. And understand that our sin, our unfaithful thoughts and actions can actually do an effect on our brain. Ed Welch who writes for Journal of Biblical Counseling, says this, everything we think, feel, and do is etched, well, you like these big words, on the neuronal fabric of our brains, the neurons. Think about those things that are good, true, and beautiful, and your brain will demonstrate a certain chemical footprint. Indulge in sinful imaginations, and it will have a different looking footprint. In other words, you actually create pathways in your brain by the way you think in the way you act. Discussion of the cause of depression is essentially, though, <laughs> we must be careful. It's like tiptoeing in a minefield. Anyone who pontificates about anyone's specific depression, you should move away from that person rather rapidly. Simplistic answers in regarding to depression are rarely much help. The cause of depression is difficult to discern because usually it's some mix of all of those causes that I just mentioned. It's chemical, it's physical, it's relational, and it's moral. It could be any of these, all of these, and a combination of these. We are an inescapably complex amalgamation of body and spirit and soul, and <laughs> we are very complex beings. Therefore, any attempt to treat and seek to heal depression and treat depression must address a number of these matters from various angles. Someone who says, here, Take some medicine and your depression will be healed are not dealing with the true complexity of depression and neither is the person who says, here, take these Bible verses and memorize them. Both of them are short-sighted and both of them cut God out of various aspects of our life. Another Ed Welch comment, he says this, even more importantly, the reason why the cause isn't as much the concern is because it's not actually necessary to know it, to treat them. We like to find reasons for our problems, and for good reason, because if we can't understand the reason for our misery, then perhaps we can, we can, we can, maybe we can do something about it if we can see the cause. And that is true. There are things that we can begin to help. But Scripture warns against needing or demanding or obsessing over finding the reasons for why God has allowed suffering, such as depression, in our life. This doesn't mean the search for a cause of our, su our suffering and depression is wrong or futile. But what I'm saying is that, that you don't have to have a clear sense of the cause in order to faithfully face depression or faithfully care for somebody in the midst of depression. Did you hear me? I'm going to say that again because this is important. You don't have to know all the causes or even any cause to actually face the depression you face faithfully or to care for someone in the midst of depression. For example, Job is the man who is given over and over again as the man who suffered maybe more than any others, he had the harshest sufferings, and he never knew a cause for his suffering. It was never shared with him. 
The basic question he asks God is, am I the cause of my suffering? Did I sin? Did I do something that brought this on? And God's answer was not to show up to Job and to divvy out percentages of different causes. Well, Job, it was about 10% physical, about 25% of your, gen- of your genetic makeup, and it was about 40% sin, and then about 30% of these circumstances. I don't know if that added up to 100, but th- you know, that's the makeup. That's not what God does. What does God do? Rather, God simply shows up and he says, I am sovereign and I can be trusted. I am sovereign and I can be trusted. Severe suffering is not primarily a time for speculation about causes. It is a time primarily, primarily, to trust the one who is overall suffering. It is a time to cling and beg and cry to God for his comfort and to trust in his ways. From this perspective, suffering and depression are sometimes from a physical cause, sometimes they're spiritual, but no matter what the cause is, the healing of a depressed person must always, always, always address the depressed person's relationship with the Lord. Healing is always found in the context of that relationship. Depression, no matter the cause, will bring this question, can I trust God in the midst of my suffering? It's a relational question. It is in relationship with God that we face depression. Trusting the Lord does not heal our difficulties. It may help mitigate them, yes. But there are many Christians who have trusted God and walk with God deeply, and they have not been relieved of all the consequences and the symptoms of depression. But ultimately, the goal for the Christian is faithfulness to the Lord, even in the midst of the difficulty of depression. And for those crying out to God in your depression, I want you to understand this then. If you're continuing to cry out, this is good news. It is a sign of faith. Let me quote Derek Kidner again. The author of Psalm 88, he says, is like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer, still in the dark, totally unrewarded. He has not seen any relief to his depression. Like Job, the author has received no satisfactory answer for why his life has turned out miserably as it has. But also like Job, he does not say, curse God and die. Instead, rather, he is clinging to God, praying to him, even to the end. This is beyond human explanation, but is the full faith victory of a saint. It is a profound act of faith and an act of courage to cry out to God in the way the psalmist does. A depressed person does not feel as if God is present. They do not feel as if God hears them and that as if God responds to them. And therefore, it is a significant and courageous act of faith to still cry out to him. It is a cry that means saying, yes, Lord, I believe, even when I don't feel believing. You know, the standards of faith are so crazy. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, it's supposed to be these people of great prominence from the Old Testament and the story of redemptive history that have these great displays of faith. Do you, have you seen some of the names in this list? One of them is a guy named Samson. Have you read the story of Samson? There is almost nothing redeeming about the life of Samson. He chops from one prostitute to another until finally he takes off the Philistines enough that they gouge out his eyes and put him in prison. And then, and then, here's his great act of faith. He's at a Philistine party where they bring him out to mock him and he puts his hands between two pillars and he asks God for the strength to bring down the building in judgment over the Philistines. And Hebrews goes, that's an act of faith. They hear Samson in his blindness and his suffering and his sorrow and his sadness. At the end of his life, he says, Lord, I cry out to you again. And he's in the hall of faith. 
When you cry out to the Lord, this is a sign of aliveness of soul in the midst of a soul that feels like death. And might I say, give you this very specific application. Are you struggling to still find ways to cry out? If this is you, then you should look to the Psalms. You see, sometimes pain and depression is so ineffable. It's a word that means something so extreme to be unexpressed. Either you have no words or you have so many words you cannot get them out all at once. There you have the Psalms to help you. Use them to get started in giving you a voice to continue the great act of lament. It's an act of faith. And the psalmist, do you understand this? The psalmist in Psalm 88 wrote this for other people to join him. He's a worship leader. So in other words, what he's saying to the depressed person, join me, and I will, I'm a little bit ahead of you in this process. I will teach you how to cry out, to live into the act of faith, of grieving in the midst of your depression. Last point, the comfort for the depressed soul. There's two things I want to focus on generally, but we're going to narrow into some, fo- some specific focuses. First is God gives comfort through physical care. The comfort of God's physical care, and he does this through our common graces. Did you know, you, if you have depression, treat the physical. It's part of the causes. The, the, the most famous illustration of this from the Bible is there's a guy named Elijah. He's known as essentially the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah, he's bold and he's courageous. He confronts a king and a wicked witch-like queen. He confronts the entire, entire cultish structure they built in Israel and calls an entire nation to repentance. But he cracks under the difficulty after his seemingly greatest victory. And over idolatry and pagans and their power, and he runs off into the desert, and he says to God, that's it, I'm out, I quit. And he doesn't mean I'm out, I quit from the prophetic role. He says, I'm out, I quit. He lays down, he's like, I'm going to die. That's it, I'm out. And what does God do? God sends an angel who gives Elijah food so that he can eat, water, And then it says, Elijah sleeps. He is tired and he's hungry and so he gets physical care. This means if you struggle with depression and melancholy, sleep, food, rest, exercise, and medicine are all comforts that God has offered to you. One pastor said it this way, don't give a depressed friend a book. No, give them a steak, preferably a very expensive one with a loaded baked potato. And if you want to get really spiritual, a pan of Sister Schubert rolls. Treating the physical means you should be medically evaluated. And if medicine is recommended to you and advisable for you with the counsel of both doctors and counselors, then take it. From a Christian perspective, the choice to take medication is a wisdom issue. It is not an issue necessarily of right or wrong. Now, there are some medicines, such as a board of pills, that are right or wrong. But this one isn't. What is best and what is wise is the correct question. Your father, the great provider and physician, has given you these things. Meds might help you provide sleep to you, offer physical energy, allow you to see in color again, and alleviate the physical feeling of depression. It is not a lack of faith to take the medicine. It is a lack of faith to fail to take it. It is a belief that God only works in one realm, and the God who says, I own everything, is not working in the physical realm. 
We have broken bodies and we live in a broken world, but your God has come to redeem every aspect of it. And so treat the physical. Not because the treating the physical with medicine will make you all better. It will not. And if that were the cause, if you could all, we could all just pop the blue pill, then I wouldn't need to preach on it, would I? Medication is a blessing when it helps, but recognize both its limitations and the fact that it can complicate matters. It can complicate matters. Because so many of the side effects, life is complex enough as it is, be careful what you get on, because then it becomes part of the equation of what is causing the issues in your life. It becomes one of the things to wonder, huh, is this medication the issue? Medication can change physical symptoms, but it cannot change spiritual ones. At the same time, know that the place of medicine can be used by God in the spiritual battle, because it can help you once again hear God's invitation. It can remove some of the fog from your brain where you can you can hear things from the truths of God's word and actually go, I feel that again. I, I experience that in a way. And in that way, medicine can be help relieve the barrier to some of the spiritual answers. So one, take God's comfort of physical care. But second, you've got to have the comfort of God's truth. Depression is a liar. The evil one lies to us and uses it. The world lies to us. We should all fort ourselves, fortify ourselves against the dark hours that may be coming by cultivating a deep distrust of our despair. We lie to ourselves in our depression, so we have to have the truth. You have to read the truth for yourself. You have to worship the words of truth. You have to keep showing up to worship when you do not feel like it because it is here other people sing to you the truth when you can no longer sing it to yourself. And you have to preach the truth to yourself. In Psalm chapter 42 there's a passage in verse 5 that says, David talks to himself. He says, soul, soul. Literally, he's addressing his soul. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so downcast? And that's what he's doing. He's saying, soul, I'm tired. I'm en- enough of you preaching to me. I am going to preach to you for a little bit. I, I, you need to listen. I'm going to preach to you. And if we're going to preach to ourselves the truth of God's words, God's word, I want to highlight just a few things that if you are struggling with depression that I want to point to. I'm going to preach to you, and maybe you can preach to yourself later these same truths. First, preach that God is doing something in your suffering. Depression lies and says that it is arbitrary and utterly hopeless and purpose, purposeless. Elizabeth Wurzel in her book, Prozac Nation, said this, It is not just pain and depression. It feels like meaningless pain. That is all I want in life, for the pain that I have to seem purposeful. God is working, though even in the midst of your depression. And God knows what he is doing even when you can't see it and even if you never see it on this side of heaven. As we know, we, as we noted earlier, we know very little about Heman, the author of this psalm, but we have a hint of what happened in his life. This supposedly God-forsaken author and found again in 1 Chronicles 6. And what he's doing in 1 Chronicles 6 is he is leading the entire nation of Israel in worship. And he's over a guild of musicians called the Kohathites. They write a number of the psalms that we have in God's word. It's one of the richest veins of worship in all of the Psalter. Burdened and despondent as he was, was, was his life pointless? No. If it was a living death and God's hands, even in the midst of that depression, God was bearing much fruit through this man's life. Do you know what this means? Because of his darkness, that darkness turned him into an artist who has perhaps helped millions of people, not just in their laments, but also in their worship to God. More, most likely, Heman wrote more than hundreds of the psalms and, that we sing for God's people. And we have this one 
from him as well. But from this point of view, he thought God had abandoned him. But God had a purpose even in his depression. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. A hero of mine that I've read about lots over the last couple of years is Winston Churchill. Churchill was known for having severe bouts of melancholy. He called it his black dog. Black dog of soul. And he had difficult circumstances throughout his life. He was essentially rejected by his parents. You read his letters from childhood. He's pleading for his parents to come see him and to write him. They don't write him for months and semesters at a time. He had one kid commit suicide. Two kids drank themselves to death. Even when he was prime minister, he wouldn't stay in a hotel with a balcony because he was afraid in a fit of depression he would throw himself off of it. But when the entire world, the Western world, was menaced by the Third Reich and we needed someone with the eternal fortitude when everybody else was peacemaking and quivering before Hitler's feet, he did this. He said, we will never, 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 never give up. Because something over the forging of his life in that 60 years had shaped him to be the man who would stand in the gap. God is doing something in your suffering. You may not know it. You may not see it now. You may not see it on this side of eternity, but he's doing something. Paul says it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For the light and momentary affliction, that is a hard thing to hear if you're in depression because it does not feel light. It's preparing for us, though, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Depression lies. Depression lies about how you feel. You know, one of the lies about all emotions we, we deal with as our kids, that one of the things we express to them is, hey, this emotion you're feeling, emotions come with this inherent saying, statement that this feeling that you're going to have is going to last forever. And that's a lie. It feels like a wave that's pushing you under. But there's eternal things. And Paul knows. He's a man who had afflictions and troubles. Perhaps Paul is saying that there are certain things that we can anticipate. Future glories that we can hope in. Things that are so weighty because they have eternal weight to them. And because of the eternality, it can actually outweigh what feels like an endless depth, darkness, struggle in your own heart. So we see the darkness but I want you to see the future beauty that is there as well that God is shaping and forming. There's a wonderful passage at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and it's been years since, I think, since I've said Lord of the Rings, and so I feel justified. Samwise and Frodo are on their journey, and they're exhausted, and they're surrounded by all this darkness and evil. There's a fog over them, and Sam, though, looks up, and just for a moment, the clouds part. And in the part in the clouds, he sees one single star twinkling, and Tolkien writes this, and the thought came to him that the shadow is only a small and passing thing, and there is a light, and there is a high beauty forever beyond its reach. It's just a star. We can't see the whole. We might get just a glimpse of light, but maybe that will remind you that the Lord is shaping in you something glorious and beautiful, and know what? The darkness will never be able to reach it. So perhaps, perhaps for you today, the, the prayer of faith is to say, Lord, give me eyes to see the future glory that you're doing in the midst of this. Depression will lie to you and say, there is no hope. There is nothing good coming out of this. The word of God says, I am doing something and it's going to be beautiful. You just wait and see. Second, preach at the cross answers your deepest and darkest questions. The grip of grace is seen in God's answer to the questions of the Psalms. Do you see the questions? 
Like between verses 9 and 15, there's all these questions. God, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise to give praise to you? God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? It's questions. There's no answer in the psalm. But you know what? It's wonderful because the Bible is not just a bunch of, of, of disconnected parts. It's leading to something. It's leading to something called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to every one of those questions, Jesus says, yes. God, you work wonders for the dead. Yeah, I can raise them up. God, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes, they will live for eternity with me, worshiping for all eternity with everyone else in heaven. God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes, and in fact, not only that, but Jesus entered the grave as a means of declaring to the world, this is how far I'm gonna go in order to make you mine and to bring you out of the depths of your darkness and despair. And the way in which the gospel answers this to call all of our questions is it gives us the yes. Jesus comes and he connects, as Joel talked about earlier in our worship service, to everything that we've experienced. Jesus' soul comes to the edge of despair. Did you know that? As he is identified with our alienation and our affliction, and he is abandoned by God the Father. The psalmist says, I've been abandoned by friends. What happens to Jesus? All his friends leave him. The psalmist says he is experiencing darkness. At the sixth hour, it says on the cross, that what happens? The sky grows dark. The psalmist says God has abandoned him, abandoned him. Jesus really was abandoned. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He really, we are afraid God has abandoned us. He hasn't left you. We just can't feel him anymore. Jesus literally was abandoned. Jesus got the ultimate darkness that Heman thought he had gotten, but he hadn't. There's a glimmer of light, but he got the real wrath, total darkness. The only person who ever sought God perfectly and but actually did lose God's face was Jesus himself. He descends into the hell in order to bring you life. The psalmists in other places know this. In Psalm 139, it says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your, sev- uh, your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave again, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall say, surely the darkness shall not cover me and the light about me be a, is night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. That's the God that you serve. And so the questions that he asks is the questions that many often ask in depression. God, have you abandoned me? God, are you good? Martin Luther said this, for more than one week, I was so close to the gates of hell, I trembled in all my body. Christ was wholly lost to me. The content of my depression was always the same. That God, the loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. But the cross and the answers of the gospel say, yes, 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 he is good. You've got to look at the cross. Lastly, preach the promises of God's steadfastness. And here we'll just be just briefly and we'll be done. Remember Christian in the dungeon? Well, they're sprung from the dungeon on that Saturday night before the Sunday in which they're to be executed by despair. They spend all night in prayer and as they entered into the Lord's day, Christian remembers. He speaks out passionately, what a fool I am. I forgot at the beginning of my journey, someone gave me this, this key called liberty. It's also called promise. And this key called promise will unlock any door and any lock. What's he referring to? It's the promises of God. See what the the psalmist refers to at one point? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? What is the psalmist doing in these questions? He's actually saying back to God all the promises that God has made in his covenant with Israel. God, you said you're going to be with us. 
You said you were going to love us in a steadfast manner. You know what steadfast love is? Steadfast love is a never-ending, never-quitting, never-leaving-you kind of love. That's what steadfast love is. That's what covenant love is. In other words, what the psalmist is saying in this question and that Jesus says, I, is, I, he's answering it with, I am with you and I will never leave you because I keep my promises. You may lose sight of him. He never loses sight of you. In your better moments, you have to preach to yourself because your depression may never go away. I do not want to give you false hope. It may never go away on this side of life, but your God will never go away either. So the place of good news is found among those who know this truth. So if I give just one final application of good news, come and be a part of God's people week in and week out. The psalmist believes that all of his friends have abandoned him or been taken, taken from him. Depression will say to you, stay away, isolate yourself, tell no one what's going on. No one likes you anyways. Your neediness and depression will reiterate those statements of unbelief to you anyways. But the place that the depressed person most desperately needs to be is amongst God's people in authentic, intimate, and loving community. Not superficial community where everybody says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. You know what FINE stands for? I love this acronym. It's used by preachers all over the place. FINE, fouled up, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. But the community that may not have words to say, they listen and they pray. A community with depth knows this is a time for me to be quiet. And a community of depth knows when it's time to speak the words of God. And then sometimes that community of depth knows we're going to be here each and every week And we're going to keep worshiping whether you're here or not. And when you want to come back in and join us and hear the good news of Jesus, you go right ahead. We're going to keep singing for your good and for God's glory. This is what Jesus did, right? When he was in the midst of despair, he asked three disciples to come pray with him. They kind of sucked at it. But he asked for them, if Jesus needed a community in that moment, so do we. There was a paralytic who took his friends, whose friends took him to Jesus' feet, and they dropped him at the feet of Jesus. This is what God's people do. There was a hymn writer named William Cooper. He wrote some of the most profound hymns that we have in our hymnals. He wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. He wrote, Oh, for a closer walk with Jesus. He tried to kill himself many times. He was suicidal throughout much of his life. They wrote a play about Cooper and his relationship with another famous hymn writer named John Newton. John Newton wrote a lot of hymns, most notably a little ditty called Amazing Grace. Newton was friends with Cooper, and he was his pastor, And in fact, he even had Cooper come live with him in the midst of his despair and depression. Newton poured out the grace of God and the care of God on Cooper. Cooper still couldn't believe the mercy and love for God for him. At various times, he would drop into such a depth of despair that he believed that God had rejected him and he was going to hell. In fact, he believed such a thing on his own deathbed. But when Cooper died, Newton, who had been telling him, God loves you, God is with you, God is never going to leave you, When Cooper died, Newton was there at his bedside in the play. And Newton waits for just a few moments after Cooper has died, and he looks up to heaven and he says, See, I told you so. You may lose him. He never loses you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is long, (laughs) and this has been, um, this has been heavy. Lord, I, I, I don't know if I would ask for you to relieve our heaviness. If we were to sit in the heaviness and the weight, would you at least be there with us? For those that need um, 
you, they desperately need joy to come in the morning. I pray that even as we sing, there would be, even like Sam Weiss saw, a single light of your goodness and your glory, something to cling to for today. And then they would find something that you would give them tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a community that so knows the good news of Jesus, that when people cry out in their depression, we have the strength and security to be quiet sometimes. And when others cry out in their depression, that we would have the strength and security not to be afraid to speak the good news of Jesus. That when we don't know what to say, we would simply open our Bibles to various psalms and we would let you lead us, Spirit of the living God, to lead us as we lead a depressed friend in crying out to the Lord. Give us wisdom on how to do this, God. We need you. Oh God, come and heal our souls. You said you're the lover of it. So come and do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.